Eyes on Oahu, I'm Sarah Doyle. This is episode four, all about Ossipoff. I am here right now in an Ossipoff home. As you can see, classic, beautiful views, massive windows, and an open lanai here in the center of the house. Um, I just interviewed DeSoto Brown about Vladimir Osipov. So let's start with DeSoto. He is a Hawaiian historian and he's the head archivist at Bishop Museum in Honolulu. And he also, he was brought up in an Osipov house. So totally an expert on the subject. Uh, Vladimir Osipov, just a profound architect who has had such an impression on Honolulu. So I have been been so excited about this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Please, if you like it, do review, rate, share, and all that good stuff. But most of all, I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much. I'm sitting here with DeSoto Brown, Hawaiian historian and archivist at Bishop Museum. Correct. Yes, is that yes. is that the short elevator bio? That is. Awesome. That, awesome. That'll do, that'll do. Okay, all right. Uh, we don't want to gild the lily, it's Hawaii, we're all very casual here, like the <laughs> no, Australians, sure, sure, right? Sure. <laughs> all right. So you grew up in an Ossipoff house. I did. And we're in an Ossipoff house. We are in an Ossipoff house. Yeah, so Ossipoff, have we? Have you talked about his bio or anything? No, no, okay. so I, I mean, yeah, I know, like, we could talk for about five hours, but let's just, yeah. Okay, well. Start yeah. wherever you think. Okay, well, With this lovely background noise. With this lovely background noise, <laughs> because we have a helicopter going. I guess we should like set, like show everyone where we are. I mean, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of people. Yeah. So this is so we're in the courtyard. We have a courtyard. This house has a courtyard. Um, it's on multiple levels. It's uh, on a on a hillside, so it goes down a fairly steep grade. And it was a subdivision that was built primarily in the 1970s. So this is a 70s house. We don't know the exact date, but we know it's from the 70s. Um, and walking through it was very interesting when we when I first came in because I could see touches that I recognized in the properties that that uh, the buildings that um, Osipov built for my parents. So let me let me back up. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, Val Osipov, as mm -hmm. he was known, mm -hmm. was Russian, and he was born in the early 1900s, as I remember, in the Russian. Uh, monarchy. So Russia was still, this is before the Russian Revolution of 1917, Russia is still ruled by nobility. Mm -hmm. His father was a, a part of the court, part of the government. Mm -hmm. He was sent as a, an ambassador or a consul to Japan. So Osipov, Val Osipov, grew up in Japan. And of course, while they were there, the Russian Revolution happened. I don't think they ever went home. And Val eventually went to architecture school in California. When he graduated, it was during the Depression, he found out about or was told to come to Hawaii for better opportunities, which he did. And then he was a practicing architect here for the rest of his life. And he developed a very distinctive style, which even at the time, certainly by the 1940s, he was a very well-recognized and respected local architect. He's best known for residential buildings rather than commercial buildings, although he did do those. And he was sought after, if you could afford him. And again, was, was, uh, his homes became famous even during his lifetime. They were known as particularly beautiful, uh, 
um, distinctive houses, and they also were very uh, sensitive to the Hawaiian environment in terms of being built to take advantage of and to really be a part of the climate that we are in, the topography that we're in, etc. And as I said earlier, there are a lot of distinctive touches that you can see that he liked to repeat. Mm -hmm. So there are things in this house that I recognize. Like what? Well, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. The house that I grew up in, which my mother still lives in, and she's 99 years old. Mm -hmm. um, was when did she turn 100? Uh, she'll turn 100 next in, Jan in June of 2020. 2020. Wow. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. In any case, and she's in pretty good shape, too. Um, in any case, and she's mentally all there. Wow. Awesome. Um, the house that I grew up in was constructed for a man named Edward Graney. And Graney? He, yeah, and he owned a... Um, Where is it? It's at the base of Diamond Head ah. above Kapilani Park. Okay. And uh, Mr. Graney was the head, of, he had his own accounting firm. Mm -hmm. And the property uh, had been subdivided. I mean, the, the subdivision itself, which is just a small one, was built in 1929. Mm -hmm. But all the spaces didn't get filled up for quite some time because of the Depression and World War II. So the house that I live in, uh, built in 1948 for Mr. Graney, his wife, and uh, one or two of their daughters who were adults, at the time. And then he, unfortunately, unexpectedly died a few years later. And so then his house became available. His wife sold it to my parents. And my parents bought it in 1951. Mm -hmm. And their collaboration or their use of Val Osipoff happened immediately because my mother didn't want to buy it until more bedrooms were added. Okay. So two bedrooms were added on what had been a one-story part of wing of the house, another bedroom was added. Then over the years, in the 50s and 60s, um, a swimming pool was built, which is an above-ground swimming pool with a deck around it, mm -hmm. a tennis court, and then another smaller house. Mm. So the other house is dates from the 1960s, and so they are not the two houses are not identical. But the touches that I saw, and if we look up at the ceiling right above us right now, mm -hmm. it's this rough textured wood, and maybe you can show everybody what that looks yeah. like. It's a rough textured wood that's got kind of a whitewash on it, and so you can see the texture of the wood. Well, our house has a similar ceiling, a portion of the ceiling like that, and the exterior, the, the second story, was also originally of that same look. Mm -hmm. um, I also saw little pieces of um, like the sliding doors mm -hmm. have, have the distinctive little uh, rectangular door pole mm -hmm. um, and other little touches that I can recognize. Now, of course, every Ospoff house is unique. Right. So it's not like every other ho every house is immediately distinctive. Right. They're not all the same. Obviously. But there is a vocabulary there that, that, that um, I think so. attracts. I think so. And now I wouldn't be able to articulate it to you necessarily, mm -hmm. but when you go to one of some of these houses, you kind of can get a sense. Something right. else, I mean, I'm looking around here, mm -hmm. and this is a 70s house, so it's not identical to the one that I'm familiar with. In mm -hmm. the but, so some of the technology is different. Like the doors over there, or the windows, that they're, they're big windows that are almost doors. Mm -hmm. um, they're on tracks, and they can they sort of look like they fold up. Mm -hmm. But while our house doesn't have anything like that, mm -hmm. the idea of open, he likes yes. a lot of openness. 
there's a lot of sliding doors. There's a lot of opening up. There's a lot. Is that of, something that he um, brought from Berkeley or Japan? I don't know. Or well, I, I think that, to I Hawaii. Think, I think that that's potentially a Japanese thing mm -hmm. because traditional Japanese houses pretty much are composed of sliding doors. Mm -hmm. um, and how you live in a house like that in a very cold climate in the winter is astonishing, mm -hmm. but that's that was the Japanese tradition. So interior as well as exterior walls, as they would be in other, other cultures, right. can open and close. So I think that that's probably a Japanese um, influence. I think also, too, Architecture is very much of the time period in which it is created. Mm -hmm. So each architect can do individual specific things, but they're also a part of what's going on. Right. So architecture sort of feeds off itself, inspires itself, so that in the post-war period, yeah. in the mid-century period, sliding doors become common in a lot of places, or big pieces of glass. And that was in windows. response to? Well, partly... That's technology. Right. It's partly because plate glass becomes inexpensive enough that you can use it. Uh -huh. I mean, um, one of the reasons, you know, stores, for example, we're accustomed to stores having big glass windows. Mm -hmm. And stores used to be known in downtown areas for window displays. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason, one of the reasons they were able to do that was because in the early 1900s, glass became affordable. Mm -hmm. It was possible technologically to buy huge pieces of glass, install them, and you can afford it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, then everybody does it, and it becomes something that's expected. Right. The technology comes along to build sliding doors that in, end up being, in some cases, just what we're familiar with, a metal frame and right. all glass. So once that happens, a lot of people do it. Right. And it also is... Uh, socially, it becomes more acceptable to be informal. Right. So, and that's specifically Hawaiian, yeah. Well, or do you but, think that's Californian it, drawn it, it, as well? It does. It because does. The Japanese are quite formal, yeah. Absolutely. And he was taught French, which is quite formal. Yes, except what we're if you for you're from Australia yes. and you're. If you'd gone back to 1900, yes, a house in Australia, a house in the United States, a house in Britain, if it was of. Uh, a certain class, would have had distinctive closed-off rooms for yes. specific purposes. So there's a formal dining room, and then there's a drawing room, and there's a living mm -hmm. room, and there's a this and a that. Servants quarters. And there's servant yeah. quarters, and then there's a pantry, and then there's a something. Mm -hmm. Well, all of those distinctions start to get wiped out because, first of all, people can't afford to do that, mm -hmm. it's, you know, other than a certain class. And also, just social things break down to where you don't have dinner in the dining room, and then the men go to this room, and the women go to this room. Right. It becomes, everybody sits around together. Mm -hmm. And there becomes more of a situation where the kitchen, where nobody went, that's just where the servants are. Yes. The kitchen is where now, if you don't have servants, you're preparing dinner, and your guests are sitting right there with right. you. And then everybody goes and eats, but maybe you eat right in the same big room. So you're seeing an evolution there. Mm -hmm. with so it's a social evolution. 30s, 40s, exactly. 50s. It's a social evolution mm -hmm. of how people live. Yeah. And the and architecture's going along with right. it. So these two things are mm -hmm. not happening mm -hmm. totally separately or in distinctive separate categories. It's going along at the same time. 
And he's always been considered someone um, with a modest approach. Um, is that um, about the scarcity um, in the depression, or is, is I think it just is sort of the the um, aesthetics of the time period. Mm -hmm. mid, you, you said mid-modern? Yeah, but even before that, by mm -hmm. the late 1920s, the really forward architects in Europe are stripping everything down. Mm -hmm. So it's a reaction against Victorianism yeah. and all of the traditions in Europe that have been going on for centuries of ornate decor, right. carvings, and little you know plaster detailing, and it gets colored in, and it gets touched up with paint, and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. People said, we're tired of this. Mm -hmm. We don't want that. It, it requires servants to take care of it. We don't have servants. We can't afford to build things like this. We just want stripped down stuff. So the coolest, most forward things of, say, the late 1920s and early 30s were austere mm -hmm. and plain. So Asipov is, as a young architect at that time, mm -hmm. is going to be looking towards that aesthetic because that was what he was interested in. Right. So that goes from being sort of avant-garde in the late 1920s to becoming common by the 50s. Mm -hmm. So you see tract homes in California, for example, being built, and, and all over the U.S. and internationally, mm -hmm. um, being built very plain. Mm -hmm. Sliding this, hide away that, you open right. it up, and then you close it, and it's covered up. Yes. Um, and what is it about Ozipop and his sort of hidden, strange um, storage... Like, is well, that, that, was, is that, that, just, that was something, I, I'm not sure what... Is that is. a quirk of the man? It's a quirk of the man, but it isn't necessarily a quirk as much as it is the idea of making use of every bit of space that you can. Gotcha. And making things more convenient. So particularly in um, kitchens, yes. there are little hidden, you know, you don't waste space. You can open this and there's a little storage thing there. Huh. And what our house has is these, these round, um, there's one sort of cupboard you can open up and it actually pivots out and it's got rounded shelves that can go in or come ah. out. There's another tall cupboard that has this metal structure in it that is a, that you turn. Mm -hmm. It's got four levels. So you can put things on each level and turn it to get to it. Clever. Very. Oh yeah. yeah. And and um, the Little Strand House, yes. which is an Ospoff house that is that can be visited yes. here in Honolulu. Um, that kitchen and the and the, the clients in that case worked very intensively with Oswald to come up with a lot of these things, but mm -hmm. there are all kinds of little hidden things. Mm -hmm. And for Mrs. Lillestrand, there's this little thing that you can open up in the floor and sweep the dust in. Oh, wow. Just quickly put it away. To quickly put it ah. away. You don't need a dustpan. Ah, it's amazing. And yeah, they, they yeah. haven't done, they haven't changed that house, have they? No, no. What about your house? Our house what have you seen vast desires on the on the Not a lot has been. People have been quite respectful, yeah. yeah. Um, we didn't do a lot to it. And um, my mother's wish, as mm -hmm. I said, she's 99, is that after she dies, I'm going to move in. Mm -hmm. So I will be moving into the Asipov house and looking very carefully at, okay, what is what do I want to fix up? Mm -hmm. What has to happen here? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what's going to go wrong with that, but the Lillestrand house being a um, kind of a quasi-public, you know, still owned yes. by one of the sons. Yes, Bob. Bob. Yes, Bob. But Bob uses it as a place for people to have meetings, right. gatherings, etc. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be looking at that, right, to Excellent. see to what 
can be done. Well, Glenn and Angus, who own this place, are really hoping to do that also. I mean, yeah. uh, people revere and respect Ossipop on this island so much, so it's good to hear that people are actually yeah. responding positively. Um, what I know there was an article, um, I, I don't know when it was, maybe in the 40s, about um, Ossipop coming to wage a war on ugliness. Oh, yeah, that's 60s. Okay, and 60s. that's from a time period in which Honolulu was growing tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, the really pivotal thing that changed the Hawaii built environment mm -hmm. was came in 1959. And that was not only when Hawaii became a state, but it's also when jets first came here. Right. So jet airplanes tremendously transformed our local economy and our environment because... They brought, they were much faster than propeller planes, mm -hmm. so people were able to get here faster. They carried a lot more people each flight, mm -hmm. and that meant that flights were cheaper. Mm -hmm. So that meant the tourism starting in 1959 and 60, 61 just exploded. Mm -hmm. And then that meant that a ton of new buildings had to be built to accommodate tourists. So Waikiki at that time went from a, it was already the tourist area, but there were you know, five ten-story buildings, and that was it. And at the time, that looked big and imposing, and oh, wow, look how big and bustling we are. Right. Uh, to this explosive period in the 60s of constant construction of mm -hmm. new high-rises. And Waikiki changed hugely in a very short time. That's when, that's when people began to say, we are trashing ourselves. Right. So... One of the big debates at the time, as more high-rises were being constructed, was we can't cover up some of the distinctive features of Honolulu in particular. Mm -hmm. Punchbowl we lost, because Punchbowl was developed completely with high-rises. So okay. Punchbowl Crater used to look a lot more distinctive, okay. there's nothing on it. And now it doesn't stand out at all. Yeah. But one of the fights was to preserve the view of Diamond Head. And New high-rises got constructed in what we now call the old coast, yep. at the base of Diamond Head. Yep. But there was other discussion of, well, let's just build high-rises all around it. And there literally were statements from developers like, well, that doesn't, the view of Diamond Head isn't that important. Ah. Who cares? And fortunately, that got changed. So mm -hmm. the, there were... So where Capilani Park is, there was plans? No, there were plans because other there's other private property around there. Right. So you could have built on that yeah. if you had the zoning permit to uh -huh. do it. So the Honolulu city government was convinced to change, to make sure to, to, to cut down or to, to eliminate that possibility. Mm -hmm. So during that time period, there's also um, mass uh, rebuilding of what had been downtown Honolulu, not only for new uh, transportation, meaning new roads and the mm -hmm. freeway, but also something called urban renewal, which was a federally funded project in the United States to demolish and rebuild areas of cities which were considered substandard. Mm -hmm. And a big chunk of downtown Honolulu was literally bulldozed. You wouldn't know that today. Wow. But a big a big part of it was de demolished. And that's the start which this Ossipoff um, statement of war and ugliness mm -hmm. also coincides with the awareness in Hawaii and as well as the United States as well as internationally of the necessity of preserving historic buildings. Right. So there was discussion of entirely demolishing all of downtown, including Chinatown. Wow. And a group of people got together and said, wait, wait, you can't do this. We've got to preserve this part of our history. Mm -hmm. So while a lot was demolished, a lot was saved, 
And so this um, awareness of the necessity to preserve aesthetics, to preserve sight lines, to preserve views, and to preserve things that you couldn't replicate got started at that time. Right. Now, I may point out that driving here, I drove past the Bank of Hawaii branch bank yep. at next to Kahala Mall, mm -hmm. and it's being demolished, mm -hmm. which I did not know. And did he design that? that no, he did not design that, but I bring that up because it's a mid-century, it was a very distinctive mid-century building. It was round, which yeah. was a fad of the time. Uh -huh. And it also had this uh, exterior metal finish on it, which was unique. Now, you're never going to replicate that. And while that's not a massive building, it does point out the necessity, again, of what we're talking about that got started in the 60s, the awareness of preserving things you can't replicate. And mid-century buildings don't have as much um, power or they're not treated with as much respect or, or um, understanding as now, other buildings are. Really? And that's something that we have to work on. Interesting. So, you know, an Ossipop building now is going to be recognized, but yes. a lot of other buildings won't. So uh -huh. while this building will be recognized yes. and, and is recognized as being something important um, that we're sitting in right now, there are lots of other buildings that need to be preserved that at this, at this particular moment may not seem like, well, who cares? Yeah. But... Once they're gone, they're yeah. never, and yeah. you're never going to build them again. So you're surprised or not really that they're knocking that one down? Um, I didn't realize it was going to be dis destroyed. And mm -hmm. I, had I known it, I would have gone and taken pictures of it. Wow. Because I at least would have wanted to replicate it. Uh, to document yeah. But, um, yeah, that happens all the time. So and that's what you have to, when we're talking about important buildings, when we're talking about buildings that need to be saved, mm -hmm. it isn't immediately apparent all the time that a building is deserving. Right. Being saved right. Because the what you're looking at, or, or what it appears to be at this particular moment, is not necessarily what it's going to be thought of in 50 years. Right. And you're potentially going to be really sorry you lost it. Right. And that's, um, I mean, we could go into lots of things, but we, we did, when we met the other day, talk about brutalism a little bit. Do you think that's been underestimated as something oh, yeah. that will be admired? Like it that. is, and brutalism, brutalism is, a, is a, for those who don't know, hello everybody watching us, um, <laughs> brutalism is a particular style that was invented in the post-war period, but which became very internationally popular, particularly in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of brutalist buildings were made for governments, they were made for um, corporations, banks, um, libraries, universities. Um, housing. Housing, yeah. Housing, not so much right. here, but okay. in other Sydney, places, very, yeah. and, and Britain. Uh -huh. And brutalism from the very beginning didn't have a lot of fans, or it had right. fans, but there were a lot of people who thought, and, and it's characterized by the very open and sort of honest use of concrete, mm -hmm. uh, a minimizing of windows and glass surfaces and maximizing of this stone mix. Is that a reaction to climate as well? Not necessarily. It just, it's more of a... Um, uh, it's more of a style, mm -hmm. but it's also, it had its appeal in terms of construction costs and sort of the ease of, not necessarily the ease, but the unification of, we're going to be doing a lot of extra things here. We're going to be building all these concrete forms, making this whole thing out of concrete, and then that's much easier. Mm -hmm. So we're not adding little pieces here and there that require other stuff. It's all going to be concrete. Mm -hmm. um, brutalism, because it is so stone-looking, 
always was detracted by people. It's cold, it's inhuman, it's yeah. unfriendly, etc. And as we were talking about when we first talked a few days ago, um, Prince Charles is a very, very big um, hater of brutalism. And he has said, oh, it's disfigured Britain, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of brutalism in Britain in particular, which was um, constructed in the wake of World War II when substandard housing was demolished, and also there had been a lot of bombing damage in American uh, British cities. Mm -hmm. But in any case, so there, there are really distinctive brutalist buildings um, here in Hawaii, because that's when the Hawaiian Islands were, again, growing very strongly economically. And there are some really big ones, but there are a lot of little ones kind of here mm -hmm. and there. And when you walk around or drive around and look for them, as you become aware of architectural styles, as you mm -hmm. become aware of the changes in architecture over time, you can travel around and start to pick things out. Mm -hmm. oh, look at that. Oh, that's mm -hmm. interesting. And having that awareness, I think, makes you appreciate more where you live, what's around you, and the understanding that, yeah, that is unique. We yeah. should preserve that. Yeah. Um, Last year, earlier this year, I went to Maui and was driving around in Lahaina, just sightseeing, and to my great surprise, I came across a brutalist house. So you very rarely see small homes that were made in the brutalist concrete style, and yet there's one right there. So that's what I really, I mean... Architecture is one of my interests, mm. but in general, I'm interested in history. Right. And architecture changes through time, and therefore, it's a part of history. And architecture is also tied to how cities grow. Mm -hmm. And I'm always very interested, when I go to a new city, to get a sense of, here's where it started, here's how it grew. Right. And you can see that if you understand and, and recognize architectural styles, you can spot what was built when, yes. because of the styles of the buildings yes. as you move through the space. And it's dependent upon the topography, it's dependent upon the economics, it's dependent a lot on transportation. Mm -hmm. Because how people get around means that's where they're going to live. Mm -hmm. And once, you know, Sydney, you're, are you from Sydney? I am, yeah. Okay. So Sydney is a fairly old city. It's mm -hmm. not old in terms of some Asian and right. European yeah. cities. But it goes back to the 1700s, yeah. 1800s. So Sydney, again, is going to have, is not a part of the United States. So it's not going to have grown in exactly the same way because cars didn't make as big, were not as common in Australia as they were in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true of all over the world. But cars then dictate how people live. Right. Because... There were, of course, buses and there were, of course, trains. But once people have individual cars, they want to live in individual homes. Mm -hmm. Then you have subdivisions. And then subdivisions change how everybody lives because you're not living in clusters as much as you are spread out. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we also talked about was the topography, as I said, dictates how things grow. And Honolulu has a very limited amount of space to grow in because we're between the mountains and the ocean. Mm. So we have a long, skinny city. But because we can't spread forever in every direction as cities in the United States, many of them can and do, we have a very intensively, densely developed urban area. And Honolulu at the moment 
is number six in the country in terms of numbers of high-rises. Wow. So we used to be four. For many years, oh, we wow. were the fourth. So it was New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Honolulu. Wow. Because of the amount of hundred, you know, we've got like almost 500 high-rise buildings, meaning of 12 or more stories. Right. So we're an exceptional city in the United States, whereas, uh, you know, we have all the same American economic elements that would lead to sprawl, mm. but we don't have the space. You don't have the space. Fascinating. So, I mean, we, we've diverted a lot from Ossipoff, but That's okay. it's, still, it's, still <laughs> it's, part of the, it's still part of the story. So, uh, what, a couple of things I wanted to ask, but I'm tracking them in my head, I hope. All right, all right. <laughs> How did Ossipoff then respond when we're talking about, um, you know, a, a respect of, obviously, the climate, but what about um, historical aesthetic of Hawaii? How did he incorporate that into his plethora of what? I think that Ossipoff kind of had his own vision, and it wasn't necessarily uh, connected to Hawaiian culture, for mm -hmm. example. It was more of what he wanted to do, but also just his response, again, to the topography and the climate. And, of course, I'm, you can see I'm looking around here. Is mm -hmm. there something I can point out that's particularly of that time? Mm -hmm. um, the openness, mm -hmm. the airflow. I mean, this also, again, when we get back to technology... This is a time before central air conditioning. Right. Now, even houses that aren't that expensive are expected to have central air conditioning. And that's just um, a, a sign of the modern times? Absolutely. Or, but also, it's hotter, right? I mean, you Well, it's here. hotter, but it, yes, it is, except it's also just an expectation that people have. Right. It's the technology makes it available, it makes it affordable, and therefore... We don't want to ever get hot. Right. We want to get sweaty and gotcha. uncomfortable. I see. Therefore, yeah. we want central air. And so when we are looking for a house to buy, if it's a new house, and I'm yeah. looking at the little doggy who lives here. Hello, yes. doggy. Hello, doggy. Uh, pardon me. <laughs> um, that's what people expect. So at the time that Ossipoff was building, mm. central air conditioning was completely out of the question right. for a private home. Right. Um, there was this one exceptional house built here in 1940 as a spec house that had central air conditioning. That was considered an outlandish thing to put in a home. Now it is people expect it. Mm -hmm. So, but Ossipoff is from a time when that level of technology didn't exist for private homes. Mm -hmm. There were um, individual wall or window air conditioners that were, you could go and buy, but he didn't design anything like that in. So his whole idea would have been, how can I make this an environment that takes takes advantage of mm. the, the climate here mm. to cool things naturally? So he's going to be thinking when he's doing stuff, yeah. and, and I've become much more aware of this than I have been in the past, of the necessity of siting structures on their site in a way that accommodates the movement of the sun and the weather patterns and the normal airflow, etc., to take advantage of them for to maximize the comfort of the house, but also when necessary to be able to protect people from when there are storms and when it sometimes is cold and rainy. How do you do that? So mm -hmm. I'm looking around where we are right now, mm -hmm. and we're on an open lanai mm -hmm. that we're completely, you know, we're under a we're under a roof but we're completely in the open air. Um, 
this house can be closed off if necessary yeah. with the, the windows that are over on the left. And then the view that you look out towards the ocean and down the hillside is is completely fixed glass windows. So if a storm comes in in this direction, it's never going to blow through and make it cold and, and uncomfortable. And why did the screen just go black? Is that, it's okay. Yes, yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay, I'm very, I'm very. No, it's good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of what the screens are doing of these objects that we're talking to. Um, in any case, so that is something that I think Asipov and certainly the people that worked in his office with yeah. him would have been conscious of. And by the time he built this house, he was very experienced. Yes. So a lot of that would have been taken into account mm. as to how he built the house. Right. And how certain things are where they are. And, the, and just the, where the house is in terms of where the trade winds are coming from Absolutely. and how it's going to affect the house. And the sun. The sun is always moving. Yes. Well, we're moving. The sun isn't. But it looks like the sun's moving. So the sun travels across... You know the sky every day during daylight hours, but from the winter to the summer, it also changes its position because mm -hmm. we're fairly close to the equator. So the closer you are to the equator, the more of that movement you have during the year. Mm -hmm. So all of those things should be taken into account as much as possible when you're building a house, particularly one like this, that is a custom-made house. Mm -hmm. If you move into a subdivision where every house is identical, Nobody thinks about that. It's just, here's the lot, here's the house, boom. An Asipov house is going to be more unique than that. It's going to be completely unique to its site. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have to be hopeful that in such a situation, these um, differing conditions have been taken into account. Mm. And you, okay, so you met Asipov mm -hmm. when you were 10 years old. Mm -hmm. What was your impression of him? Um... He had an accent. Mm -hmm. Russian or? Uh, yeah, it was. Really? Yeah, because he had, um, I mean, he had an accent. It wasn't just a, ma majorly identifiable. Right. But he didn't speak like an American or an Australian. Ah, I mean, uh -huh. You and I have distinctive accents. We do. But he had sort of an indeterminate one. But uh -huh. I mean, you know, he lived, he hadn't lived in the United States till he was a young adult. So right. He had an accent. Was he speaking Japanese when he grew, when he was in yeah, Japan? Oh, yeah. So yeah. He spoke Japanese fluently. And Russian and, and Russian English. And English. Wow. Correct. Um, he was a dapper-looking guy. Yeah. He had a little mustache. His office wasn't very big. I mean, his office was in a little two-story commercial building on Ward Avenue, just Eva of the um, Honolulu Academy of Arts. Mm -hmm. So for such a... I, I do remember thinking, yeah. this is awfully small and right. undistinguished looking, even as a kid. Um, now that building is still there, but the traffic is so extreme that it's really hard to get in and out of it. Uh -huh. But even at the time, it looked like a little two-story apartment building, and that surprised me that somebody uh, who I thought of as important was in such a sort of insignificant-looking building. Right. Um, he dressed informally. He didn't yeah. have. He didn't wear a necktie. I mean, certainly by the time I was going to see him, he probably did wear a necktie before that. But when I went in the '60s, he was dressed in a sports shirt. Um, he, I thought of him as sort of, um, authoritarian. I right. Think. I got okay. the impression of him being sort of, we're going to do this, this, uh -huh. and this. This is going to be here. This is going to be there. And this was during the construction of 
a smaller house on my parents' property. So there was there was give and take as to we want this, we don't want that. And I don't think they made a lot of changes in what mm-hmm. he suggested, but I got the feeling of sort of whether that was correct or not. Um, again, an authoritarian, mm-hmm. we're going to do it this way. Right. Interesting. I mean, I mean and we're, we're from the gaze of a 10-year-old, so you probably can't speak too much about him, but, you know, it's been said that he was as cryptic as a crossword and um, was very picky about who he hung out with. Oh, I can believe that. Um, he also wasn't overly talkative. He wasn't, like, in your face mm-hmm. or loud. Mm-hmm. I got the impression of him being more... Again, authoritarian, but soft-spoken. Like Japanese. Yeah, and, kind and of. Russians yeah. Aren't. yeah. Well, Russians are. Yes. <laughs> in any case, um, but a unique man. I mean, certainly he yeah. wasn't like other people you just sort of bumped into. Yeah. Um, particularly here. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I was also, I was impressed, I think, just because the time as a kid I wasn't really clear I mean building a building seemed like a very big deal mm. and to oversee the construction of a building even mm. if it was just a house was to me kind of um, worthy of respect and kind of not quite clear on what you do but that's impressive mm. did you um did you know you were in the company of someone of, of fame or well yeah, I kind of did. Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have the same level of recognition or fame that he has now. Yeah. And that's going to be typical because until someone dies, yeah. they could always keep doing stuff. And once yes. they can't do that anymore, then yes. we look reverently upon what they did accomplish. Mm-hmm. But at the time, yeah, um, I knew he was important. Mm-hmm. So, okay, and he's, he's, he died in 98, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 98, so it's been about 20 years. I mean, this is... That's a this long is, life. That is an amazingly long life, long career. What, something like yeah. 800 buildings on the island wow. within that. Prolific. Wow. Just wow. incredible. Yeah. I mean, this is... You, you, we're just in imagination land, but what do you think he would have thought since uh, in the last 20 years what's been going on um, architecturally? It's hard to know. I think that yeah. there are things, I mean, certainly every architect or everybody who is a contractor or something who works in the field, they would find good and bad. Yeah. They, there would be things they would like, there would be things that they would hate. Yeah. And particularly for someone of his level of taste and um, vision and unique qualities, I think it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to anticipate what he'd like and what he wouldn't like. Yeah. Um, when I think about Asipov in, in, in sort of a larger sense, what would he think of what Honolulu looks like today? Yes. What would I also wonder what he would think of the our train system under construction? Yeah. Uh-huh. And whether he would approve of that or not? I mean, not 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 taking any costs into account or anything like that, um, because the train system, which is still under construction but which is theoretically going to open for limited use next year, in 2020, we um, are going to see that making big changes to how the whole movie grows. And we're already seeing it with the abundance of new high-rises, which are either under construction or are announced for the area around Alamoana Center, which mm-hmm. is where the terminus of the train, as it 
currently is being built as would be. That's going to make a big difference in how Honolulu develops in the future. Mm. It will be very interesting to see how that happens and what form it takes. Mm -hmm. um, because that's something that you can't anticipate until it's actually getting started, but we're yeah. seeing what that's going to be. And that's going to be something I personally will be watching. Yeah. And do you think um, right now, are people more, well, architects being... Um, uh, persuaded into a more economics, uh, just specifically economic way to design, or do you have? It depends. I think if you certainly, I there is a great deal of interest in the redu reduction of energy use, which mm -hmm. is extremely good. Mm -hmm. The reduction of costs is always part of it. Building anything always has been, unless you have a client who has unlimited funds, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to see, as I just said, in terms of the um, construction of our train system, we're probably going to see changes in how people transport themselves, which could have some effect on architecture. Mm -hmm. If the amount of personal vehicles doesn't grow as much as it has been, then accommodating all those vehicles will not be quite as much of a big deal as it is now, mm -hmm. but we'll see. Where is the train going? The train is going from Ala Moana Center on this end mm -hmm. all the way out to the West Oahu College campus, uh -huh. on the, or just beyond that on the other end. So the very far end of this system, at the moment, um, some of those stops are pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. There's nothing built around them. Right. But it's going to so be. So there's plans. There, are, there will be things mm -hmm. built around them. Um, and... The other stops, again, are undoubtedly going to engender construction of uh, most likely housing, mm -hmm. which people will be able to use the train system to get places without necessarily having to have a car. Wow. And there is socially and sort of um, in, the, in people's minds, there is among younger people uh, less reliance upon cars. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing, which I could never have anticipated, is fewer people getting their driver's licenses and really? wanting to own cars, mm. which is completely unanticipated. Mm. So, um, and for whatever reason. But that's a big deal. Part of it is probably the cost of living here, yeah? Part of it is, but I think also, too, we Just have so much electronic communication, you don't have to physically sure, travel as much. Sure, totally. Digital nomads. Exactly. And probably... And Climate conscious as well. Yeah. yeah. So it used to be that you couldn't wait to get a car yeah. and get out to go where you could go on your own. And now it's not so much because mm. I can just talk to you get via it, my yeah. phone. Yeah. And I can go all over the place looking at things on my phone, mm -hmm. theoretically. So um, that that is going to make a big difference in these uh, directions of growth and mm -hmm. economic patterns. If you're not selling as many cars, that means that that level, that part of your economy is not as strong. Mm -hmm. If you don't have as many cars, you're not servicing as many cars. You don't have to sell gasoline to as many cars. But you also don't have to accommodate cars. And accommodating cars in parking spaces is a huge thing mm -hmm. that takes up an immense amount of room mm -hmm. everywhere. And if we reduce that, that means... It's, it's a better situation all around. Right. And maybe a little more creative flair in architecture? <laughs> potentially. Potentially. Because mm. you don't have to necessarily, you don't have to take as much room for vehicles. Mm. But 
the reduction in the number of vehicles may end up being very minimal. Mm-hmm. So it may Same. or may not make a difference. Time will we'll tell. see. Yeah. We'll see. But that's a big that's that's a big mm. shift. Mm-hmm. Once cars are introduced, wherever they are in the world, the average person wants one, gets one, and changes the way they live. Mm-hmm. Because once you have that level of autonomy, you don't want to give it up. Yeah. And it's hard. But and yet we're seeing voluntarily people seem to be doing that. Mm. Okay, so last question. Do you have, um, well, either a favorite aspect of, of Ossipov aesthetic or um, vernacular or a favorite Ossipov house here? Um, I think that the commonalities that I see and I like mm-hmm. are, um, in some cases, a lower ceiling rather than a higher ceiling. You like that? I like the sort of... Um, yeah, I, I like sort of the, the smallness and the protection mm-hmm. sort of feeling of it, rather than a high vaulted ceiling. Um, the upright beams, widely spaced, that support a lot of openness, mm-hmm. um, a lot of open between back outside and inside, Yeah, um, enclosed courtyard areas or planted areas that the house uh, opens up to. Um, Did you spend a lot of time, sort of, in, the, in this lanai setting courtyard, growing up? In not the yeah, well, not too much because we didn't open our the doors that much. No? The bottom level of our house has huge sliding doors, mm-hmm. but we didn't open them all that much, just because there was furniture in the way. Uh, okay. So it was kind of designed. The house is designed to be able to be opened up almost completely. Yeah. In the living room, in the dining room, but. We didn't do it very much because there were couches and stuff right. in the way, so we didn't do it. Um, we have, it's built on a slope like this house is, and so there is an excavated part in the back that is where there's a paved area. You can look up, you can look at it. That's very been, that's always been very much a part of that house. Mm-hmm. And it's also got a beautiful view in the other direction. Right. So that view was always, that's, that's a part of my mentality right. of my whole life has been looking at that view. And, and a commonality, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's just the master of framing views. Yes. And if there isn't a view, there is an enclosed garden space. And that's yeah. very Japanese, too. Yeah. Um, that you have sliding doors that open up to your own little garden, mm. your own little planted area. Mm. Um, but what I was going to say about yeah. the view from our house is... That's where I, in my lifetime, watched Waikiki go from wow. a handful of buildings to a mass of buildings. Mm. And I can remember as a very little kid, this being probably in the late 1950s, that looking out at this view, you know, there were a few buildings, but the tallest things were the broadcast towers. So the towers that broadcast radio and TV stations were by far the biggest things much bigger than any buildings. They stood out because they were so big. And they all had a blinking red light on the top. So that was the thing as a kid that mm-hmm. I would look at and see those rather than buildings. Because they mm-hmm. were buildings. And then slowly, and, like slowly and probably, yeah, between 55 and 65, it just went... Oh, yeah, and, and mm-hmm. into the 70s. It yeah. Just, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's very wow. different now. And so the Waikiki, you know, Waikiki is building... There are big buildings that are still being built there. There are two. We're, we're seeing two under construction now. And Princess Kaiulani Hotel is to be raised, and a new hotel built there. 
But we're also seeing areas that formerly didn't have any high-rises having a lot of high-rises. Like Kaka'ako. Kaka'ako, but also, as I said, around the Hong Center for yeah. the train station. Right. So we're seeing a bunch of building, you know, like five high-rises are going to be built there, or either under construction or slated for construction there. Mm. And that's a lot. So we're going to see areas that will grow explosively, I mm. think, or, or quickly. Mm. Depending on the overall economics and other mm-hmm. things, but yeah, right. So it's never it never changes. I mean, yeah. cities are organisms that change yeah. just like animals do and plants do. Yeah, humans. Um, so a favorite aside from your childhood home, do you have a favorite house or? Also I don't know that you know that I haven't. I mean, yeah. I've certainly been to a variety yeah. of them, but pardon me, that is my telephone making it's a scary not noise, <laughs> and I'm not going to listen to that. Um, <laughs> but. Mm. In any case, um, I don't know that I have a grip on how many. I mean, you said there are eight hundred structures. Yeah, that's tons. That's so many. You know, yeah. I couldn't even. There's no way you could see them all. No. So I don't know that I've got yeah. a favorite that I can pick out because, of course, I've been to some Asapov houses yeah. and I've been to buildings that are Asapov, but I don't even remember all of them. Right. Or nor do I even. Let's just cut that off. Um, anyway, so yeah. I think that, that sort of you know, sums that up. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you so much for coming You're and welcome. talking about our You're stuff. Welcome. We could just talk for hours and hours and hours and hours about what we'll call it. And thank you for, you know, just being on top of some of these uh, technical issues we've had today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Desoto Brown, you're the best. <laughs>